If you would please open up your Bibles back to the letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. Today we'll be beginning chapter 12. So 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Today we begin a three-chapter section of 1 Corinthians in which the Apostle Paul deals with another concern or question that the Corinthian believers had asked him about in a previous letter, which was full of questions. This series of questions to Paul began to be addressed back in chapter 7. And there, in the first verse, Paul writes, Now concerning the matters about which he wrote, we see the phrase, Now concerning the matter, or matters several times as Paul continues to answer and deal with several questions. Back in chapter 7, he started doing this with questions about marriage and singleness and celibacy. And in chapter 8, Paul dealt directly with questions about food offered to idols In chapter 9, Paul explains what it means to be free in Christ, acting in the interest of others and not out of self-interest. In chapter 10, he seriously warns the Corinthians about the danger of compromising with idolatry, and he does that by citing some of Israel's history, because they had a history of compromising with idolatry. And in chapter 11, he deals with the issues of head coverings in worship and then their abuses of the Lord's Supper. And now in chapters 12, 13, and 14, Paul deals with what it means to be spiritual, a big part of which is the proper use of spiritual gifts. I say the proper use of spiritual gifts because it quickly becomes evident in these chapters that a very divisive problem was their abuse, especially of the gift of tongues. Another factor that will help us understand this section is some information about what constituted much of the pagan worship of Greco-Roman culture, especially in Corinth. So, I want to revisit this for a few minutes just because it'll put us in the context of what Paul is dealing with. Don't hesitate to apply it to our context. It's a short jump. A common understanding in pagan worship was that certain enlightened individuals were in touch with the gods and endowed with unusual spiritual powers, like predicting the future, talking to the dead, pronouncing curses, etc., etc., etc. You may be thinking right now that much of the TV lineup deals with several of these particular topics these days. In addition to many pagan temples in Corinth, and there were many, the area around, it's, it wasn't that far from the Oracle of Delphi, 
where there was this temple dedicated to someone, a god called Apollo. This was one of the centers of pagan worship in Greece. Followers went there to receive directions from the gods. It should be apparent that the notion that certain individuals, that's the key phrase here, possess great spiritual insight, that idea was widely held by most people in this area of the world. In fact, many of those thought to possess these divine powers and abilities would offer up ecstatic utterances like speaking in tongues, engage in all sorts of religious, what is called frenzies, which shouldn't be too hard to figure out, fall into trances and so on, most often done during temple festivities. Many were called enthusiasts, that's the word, and were characterized by public outbursts and extreme religious practices. See any parallels in our day? Now, you might want to remember, and I was wondering whether I should mention this, but I think it'll help. There were thousands, literally, of temple prostitutes in Corinth. One of the reasons the pagan religions were so popular. In other words, you could have an experience with God by partaking. This was the culture in which these people lived. Now, If we realize that, some are probably wondering, many of you probably wondering, well, weren't there Old Testament prophets who would be a few, given revelation through dreams and visions and other supernatural means? Yes, there were. But if we jump to the New Testament at Pentecost, after Christ rose and ascended, This marked a new age in redemptive history in which the Holy Spirit was poured out upon just a few believers, the leaders, or all believers. All believers, not just upon a few enlightened souls. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is what characterizes all those who are in Christ those who have been transformed from sin and bondage to that freedom in Christ, in which we are now seen as adopted sons and daughters of Christ and heirs to all the riches of heaven. That is quite a contrast to the pagan religious culture that the Corinthians were living in. Now, while some Christians, especially the apostles, manifested sensational spiritual gifts after Pentecost, the key word in that phrase is some. We could even say less than some. 
such as tongues, along with the gifts of healing and miracles, which confirm the preaching of the gospel. We'll get to all of this in a few weeks. The primary manifestation of the work of the Holy Spirit was what? The fruits of the Spirit, which stood in stark contrast to the works of the flesh that Paul lists in Galatians 5, 19 through 21, right before he lists the fruit of the Spirit. It's a stark contrast. And the works of the flesh characterized individuals prior to their conversion. Now, what are the fruits of the Spirit? Most of you know there's nine. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Isn't it interesting that this primary work of the Spirit is not characterized by the dramatic or the sensational? That is key. For our discussion, it's a key part of Paul's discussion. Instead, the fruit of the Spirit, at least, seem kind of ordinary, maybe even mundane, since they have more to do with the transformed behavior of the Christian, the individual Christian. Paul communicates this difference, how, in Corinthians in Galatians, he just made a list. So these are the fruit of the Spirit, and he listed them. How does he do that in this book? You know the answer. We're almost to the chapter. He has a whole chapter on love, the first fruit, of which is true of all the other gifts as well. the importance of the primacy of love in the life of Christ's church is how Paul deals with it in chapter 13. Why? Because this church was a mess. They were divisive. People were power hungry. They were showing off, thinking that some of the gifts they had were actually from God. But the way things were happening, it was probably more of their own device. Now, if we look ahead and scan through chapters 12, 13, and 14, we find that Paul had a whole lot to correct. Most of which, which is about the way the Corinthians were trying to transfer their pagan worship behavior and spirituality into the church. If you're not awake yet, this should wake you up. Their biggest problem, let me say that again, was they were trying to transfer their pagan worship previously, those experiences and behavior and spirituality into the church. I had to stop this week for a while and just shake my head going, this is the easiest explanation of how the church is fighting battles of what? Non-Christians coming into the church today trying to do and succeeding in doing 
exactly the same thing. Keep that in mind because this is one of the cornerstones, the building blocks for understanding this whole passage. Actually, the whole rest of Corinthians, not just the next couple of chapters. So as we begin now in chapter 12, we find that the way Paul begins to deal with spiritual gifts is very surprising. In fact, most of the time we just skip right through the first part of chapter 12 and want to get to that list because we want to know what or how many we have. And you can sign up for a test. Don't. Let's first do what we need to do when we exposit through a book of the Bible. We need to go verse by verse because what Paul says in the first three verses of this chapter literally is the most important thing in the whole section. It raises a question of a place we need to be in our minds and hearts if we're going to understand this at all. Well, let me read the first three verses of 1 Corinthians 12. If you're able, please stand as I read. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Giving you time to stand up because it's short and you'd be already probably sitting down if I went fast here. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Now let's unpack this. Because he says a whole lot here in a very, very few words. To most of us, these opening verses look like they're not related to the topic of spiritual gifts except for the first phrase or two. But as we've already seen, Paul has to keep reminding. Have you noticed that in this book? He has to keep reminding the Corinthians that their past lives and religious experiences have been affecting or coloring their present understanding of what God has done for them in Christ. So much so that they were forgetting who they are now in Christ. This is the age-old problem of belief and faith in Old and New Testament. We are not inoculated against this way of thinking. We have to deal with this. If Jesus is Lord, then he is Lord of everything. Worship has to be about him, not them. This means that they cannot 
manifest the gifts of the Spirit if they are not submitting to Jesus as the Lord He is. Because of the way their worship services are so out of order, which is what he's going to be addressing, Paul must start addressing the subject of spiritual gifts by once again getting them to see who Jesus is. And this is not five chapters of doctrine. It's one phrase. Jesus is Lord. I didn't tell certain people leading today to read Romans 10. It just happened. I hope you caught what was read in Romans 10 verse 9. Did you see it? Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is God, Jesus is a great guy, Jesus was what? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and this goes together, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now we all know that Satan knows that Jesus is Lord as well. This is not just, well, if I say it, I'm doing it. This is the, your life's got to demonstrate that you are submitting to Jesus as your Lord. Shouldn't be a question. Not only does worship have to be about him, Not only are the gifts of the Spirit given by the Holy Spirit to those who submit to Jesus in belief and in practice, because the way their worship services were going, it was obvious that people weren't. Only if we get to understand that Jesus is Lord, can we determine that whether whether we're emphasizing and experiencing what we're emphasizing and experiencing worship is truly a manifestation of the Spirit or just a transplant of modern-day pagan behavior and spirituality into the church? I finally realized I'm a little slow. Yesterday, in the news of one of the presidential candidates withdrawing, that that girl was a classmate of mine in high school. I knew she was famous already. She is described as a spiritual guru, Oprah's. 13 books. So I read a lot of quotes. Maybe I'd just been avoiding this all these years because I knew she was into something. She's described as a new age spiritual guru. And a lot of those ideas have been transplanted, transplanted into her thinking. 
And she's in it sincerely. But th we, we are inundated with this kind of talk everywhere. In other words, Jesus is Lord can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people who consider themselves spiritual. So we need to ask the question of what's the main difference between all this? How can someone tell the difference? And what we're going to see is that spiritual gifts are exercised in the church are supposed to build up or edify those in the body for a purpose so that the whole church benefits. The pagan version transplanted into the church benefited a particular individual, enabling them to show off their spirituality or power, not the church as a whole. What do we hear today in our situation? It's all about the individual. You haven't reached your potential. And there's some funny stuff out there. Have you seen the advertisement about, and it's one of those companies, about Pinocchio giving self-improvement and motivational speaking and that he had to fail? Have you seen that? And he looks out in the audience and he said, why did he, you know, and you're thinking, why did he fail as a motivational speaker? Because he looked at somebody and said, you have potential. You will make it. You just need to, well, you know, the whole speech of motivational speaking. And what happened? It's funny. But it's amazing how many people in this room if you are with a company or work, anything, you're getting some of this somewhere. It's the air we breathe. And we know that, and we still like hearing it. Pagan religions stress dramatic personal religious experience. The purpose of spiritual gifts, which are distributed throughout the members of Christ's body, is to bring glory to Jesus Christ, the Lord, through the building up of the whole church by the edification of God's people. So the so-called gifts of the Spirit, Spirit, which do not exalt Jesus as the Lord He is, by building up his church, cannot be said to be true gifts of the Holy Spirit. And that's where we've got to start. We're not going to get any farther than verse 3 today. So if you came expecting the list and a handout with the test, you're going to be severely disappointed. But we will get to the list. But we've got to understand this first. In verse 1, we read, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers... I don't want you to be uninformed. 
This was a big issue since the peace and well-being of this, conver- uh, this congregation was literally at stake. So it shouldn't surprise us that Paul takes three chapters to address this. Most of his letters were just five or six chapters, if that much. Though most of our, the major English translations, check yours, say now concerning spiritual gifts in this verse, a better rendering would be now concerning spiritual things. The word for spiritual is in the text, but there is not a word for gifts in the original. Now, what's going on here? Gifts is added with the immediate topic in mind, which is fine, because this is what the topic gets to very quickly. In other words, the literal reading is now concerning the spiritual. The word that's used for spiritual gifts is not here in this verse. Do you see how this affects how Paul is starting to deal with all this? At first I thought, well, it doesn't really. Otherwise, not all the, most of the major English translations would, would say something else. But when you start reading up on it, a lot of people have two possible ways to say it. Now, how does it affect it? Well, this means that Paul's topic is a proper understanding of spiritual things of which he of which the proper use of spiritual gifts is a major part. And you're thinking, well, that's not that much different. Yeah, sort of, but it is different. The main topic is spiritual things. Your spirituality. So the primary reason for what Paul will say is that he does not want the Corinthians to be ignorant about spiritual things, of which spiritual gifts are a big part of this. In other words, this is not just about the list of spiritual gifts. It's much, much bigger. In verse 2, He writes, you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Now, how does that sound to you? Does that sound like a compliment? No, it's not a compliment. Paul takes his readers back to the time before their conversion so they will remember just how much they had been led astray. Completely. They bought it hook, line, and sinker. He's making them remember how much, therefore, they had been deceived. Led astray conveys the idea of a prisoner or a condemned person being led away under the control and direction of somebody else. So paganism had held them captive before Christ set them free. So he's reminding the Greek Corinthians especially that they had been convinced of this truth of paganism. So he is speaking to them as those who did not know any better, not exactly a compliment. The Jews should have and did know better 
But their whole history was full of idolatry. They were taken to captivity by the Babylonians because of idolatry. The prophets were spilling the beans about the truth of what God desired because they were involved in idolatry over and over and over and over again. And they had God's revelation. So really the two groups are not that far apart, are they? Now remember, we know that from chapters 1 and 2 that these Corinthians considered themselves to be very wise. Remember those chapters? The wisdom of the world is really foolishness. And here again, once again, their worldly wisdom is seen to be foolishness. What Paul is getting at here is that spiritual experiences are not validating in and of themselves. And what is scary to me, and it should be to you, I think, is that we live in a culture right now that the only thing that is valuable or validated is someone saying, well, that's my experience and this is what I think. And you're supposed to put a period right there. And if you ask a question, you're being hostile and intolerant. Used to be somebody could say something like that and you could ask them a question and have a great discussion. Both people being nice. Man, it's getting hard to do that anymore. Because someone's experience makes it truth, quote unquote. We've got to recognize that. So, he's almost ready to get to his main point. These people had spiritual experiences as pagans who worshipped idols. Since those spiritual experiences were in the context of worshipping idols, they had to be rejected by anyone claiming to belong to Christ. He's already dealt with this, especially in the Lord's Supper and the whole contrast with them eating meat served to idols and helping them think through that. They were free, but, and then he guides them through how they should operate. But what is his main point? Well, it's this somewhat can be confusing verse 3. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. The critical point is this. That what we affirm and confess about spiritual things, that's what reveals whether or not we're being led astray or have been given true wisdom. What we affirm or confess. What Paul does here is he introduces a contrast between cursing Jesus and confessing him as Lord. He's not saying that some Corinthians were somehow cursing Jesus. And it's amazing. You read through commentaries on this verse and, and it, it reflects a a debate that's been going on, conversation for millennia, 
trying to figure out what, what the actual circumstance was where Christians in the Corinthian church could actually say Jesus is accursed. Well, there's probably, that probably wasn't what they were saying. And there's some ideas about how you could get mixed up about Jesus taking our curses on the cross. And so somebody could translate that, that a little more and not deal with the really important other things around that issue and see that Jesus is accursed instead of bearing ours. And how much you become that and how much you don't. If this was actually happening, Paul's rebuke would be much more direct and forceful. The circumstances upon which Paul may be basing this contrast, as I just said, have been discussed and debated for millennia. And really, <clears throat> there may be better explanations than what I could find, but no one has really offered a, a, a viable possible circumstance that could really explain the details of really what I believe is just a simple way of stating the obvious as Paul starts this discussion that the Corinthians desperately need to hear. I think it's wise not to speculate about that because you end up missing the point. And instead, see, we've got to see the importance of the contrast at the beginning of Paul's discussion about spiritual things. Tom Schreiner writes, those who are led by the Holy Spirit will speak and act in ways that glorify the Lordship of Jesus. That's the point. The Lordship of Jesus. Not, I'm his greatest servant. Not showing off with something. So that other people go, man, I wish I had that gift. They get all the attention. Confessing Jesus as Lord, I hope you realize, is not the product of human insight. Nor does it come from human willpower. On the contrary, confessing Jesus as Lord represents the activity of the Holy Spirit who so works in human beings that they recognize Jesus' lordship. None of us would be sitting here worshiping him if it was just us who had to reason out and come to our own decision to believe in God through Christ. He had to renew our hearts so that we, we would want to. That's what's so humbling and beautiful. So the question is, will the Corinthians humble themselves before the Lord they say they believe in and belong to as they hear Paul address the issues surrounding spiritual things from God's point of view? And if you're thinking about this and you want to have a real interesting short experience, think about this and then read through. 12, 13, and 14. And you'll see things fall in place that you've never seen before because Paul deals with it graciously but firmly and clearly because he's interested in the people bringing glory to the Lord Jesus Christ as one body of believers. 
in this local church? Maybe a better question is, will we humble ourselves before the Lord in this regard? Do you see yourself as one individual person attending a church? Or do you see yourself as a vital member of the body of Christ? And you're not worried if you're the fingernail or the cheek or the ear or whatever. I mean, if are you a part? If you're a part, every single member is important. But Jesus is the head. He decides which part we are or how we function. Some are seen, some are not seen. All this Paul's going to make really clear in the coming chapters. So what's coming up is not just a list of the gifts that God distributes to the people of his church. Instead, it's first a picture of a body with many parts, yet unified as one. It's a beautiful picture of how God works with individuals who are a vital part of the unified whole, directed by the Lord who sanctifies us in the process of working out his will through the whole church. Christ himself is the head, and upon him we trust and depend and love and serve and worship. We live in him to glorify him, not ourselves. When somebody's hurting or missing around here, what happens? One of our leaders wasn't here today. The other arm filled in. That's just one obvious example. When somebody is in trouble, everybody that's involved or connected goes through it too. When there's joy and you see God work, and you're connected, what happens? You rejoice with them. That's the picture. And the Corinthians were fighting over all this stuff. Oh my God, never, never, never let us get to that point. Because it's easy to slip and get there. Again, there's never not a perfect time to take communion together. But it just seemed like the last year or two that every time we do, it's like, oh, well, this is the best example. So let's celebrate it together. The Lord's Supper is primarily appointed for our souls. And we've already touched on the part of 1 Corinthians where they had to be corrected because they had turned it into this massive feast, so much so that people were getting shut out and people were getting there and trying to get their food first and completely destroyed the whole purpose of the meal, which was very serious. And do we recognize that we receive true spiritual nourishment when we focus on and believe Christ? Think about that. 
because we get to sing a hymn that will refresh and encourage your, your faith. So I'll take our hymnals and turn to 247. And let's go ahead and stand again. Oh, sacred heaven. 